Hey you, fancy seeing you here, and welcome to Hiden Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Adam Romy, who is a bassoonist and the manager of digital concerts and broadcasts of the Minnesota Orchestra, and we'll be talking about exploring restaurants and cuisines in the Twin Cities. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Patty. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, so the easiest way to describe how we met each other is through a mutual friend, past guest of the podcast, Lucas Button. Yes, a fantastic and incredible human being and a wonderful cellist. Absolutely. I 100% support that description. Yeah. You guys met though at Orchestra Now, is that correct? We did. We had some other mutual friends who thought that maybe we would get along and we ended up getting along so well that we lived together for about a year and a half until I moved out of that area. Yeah. And then of course, as people might have listened to his episode, of course, I met Lucas through many of mutual friends as well. So it's like probably all your mutual friends and our mutual friends are all friends with each other. I think that's extremely likely, actually. The the music world (laughs) tends to work like that. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, Adam, what is your most insane performance story? Well, when I was living in Toronto, I was attending the Glenn Gould School, Mm -hmm. and my work study was as the assistant to the director of the New Music Ensemble. And I started... So not the assistant? (laughs) Yeah, not the assistant director. No, no. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) And I was encountering all kinds of wonderful new music, and the director said, well, you know, in a couple months we're doing this piece that's just amazing called In Vain by Georg Friedrich Haas. (laughs) I said, well, you know, I'm not sure if I have time, but I went home and I listened to it and it was spectacular and incredible. And he explained to me that one of the things that was special about the music of Haas was that he would write for light as part of the orchestra as a silent percussion instrument. So there would be Mm. sections that would go pitch black or sections that would be slowly bringing up the light or sections that would be flashing light within the context of the music. And I said, wow, that sounds cool. So we went all the way down the rabbit hole, like we blacked out all the windows in the space. We checked the fire code things and found out you can't put anything over them, but you can temporarily cover them if you have a sign and you just hold them up. And this was in Toronto, so I don't know if those rules apply here. So we were able to achieve real, true pitch black. And we were rehearsing the piece, we got to the performances, and the composer was there. And there are two dark sections of this piece where the musicians have to memorize what they're doing and respond to each other real time in the pitch blackness because you can't see the conductor. Many of the students were skeptical of the piece, which I think is easy with new music because you can't always hear the context within your own part. But so during the first performance, we got to this peak of the second dark section where, again, it was totally pitch black, couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And we made this incredible sound, which is, of course, in the score, as the composer intended, that I think no one really expected to make. And we were all kind of shocked. And then right after that was when the the lights were supposed to start flashing and coming back on mm-hmm. and the lighting director got lost so oh, no. in that moment we were trapped at the edge of a page sort of making murmuring sounds and it was totally pitch black and no one knew what to do because there was no way to communicate with anyone right <laughs> for what felt like an eternity you know we were all just sort of sitting there and it was like you can't see the conductor the conductor can't talk to the, you know like what's, what's yeah, you, yeah, yeah. What, what do you what's what are you going to do and of course the composers in the audience like that also is stressful so mm-hmm. finally after what seemed like forever but was probably closer to 90 or 100 seconds the conductor clapped really loud and said q1 and then the lighting director caught back up but for a moment there it was just anyway it was an incredibly memorable experience being stuck in pitch blackness with no idea of how you're going to move forward during a musical performance oh my gosh i mean i feel like my what's the saying when you're when something drops to the pit of your stomach i don't know what is it the heart or whatever some organ drops to your stomach right (laughs) but but it sounds like that kind of experience where it's
it's like yeah, you freeze because you don't know what to do. Right. And what makes it so memorable to me is everyone in the ensemble felt like that. Like, how could yeah. you not? <laughs> you know, you're just, yeah. you're all playing together. So there was a sort of collective panic while you were making, again, these kind of, you know, murmuring modern sounds waiting for whatever's going to happen. In any case, that was an extremely memorable performance for me, but the composer was not particularly happy about it. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. But that does sound like a really cool piece. It was a, a really special experience. And I actually attended a performance of the piece in the Netherlands a few years later, and uh-huh. they were not able to achieve the true pitch blackness. And part of me thought, oh, yeah, I really miss it. And then another part of me thought, well, you know, no one's going to get lost to that same degree right. that we were. Right. That was unique. No, totally. Yeah, I could see the pros and cons to that, especially from your PTSD of playing it. <laughs> right. Okay, well, thanks for sharing that story. Can you tell me about Pashi? Uh, so Pashi is our cat. I live with my fiance and we've both had cats and I guess also dogs growing up. And a few months after I moved in with her, my sister, she's a, an incredible animal lover. She's got multiple cats and three dogs. And she said, hey, you know, there's this cat that's been living under a board in my driveway. And I, I took her in because I felt so bad for her, but m- maybe you could look after her for a night. Uh-huh, uh, that's and, uh-huh. You know, looking back on it, my sister knew exactly what she's doing because she's done that kind of stuff before. Mm-hmm. And, and that night actually happened to be Christmas Eve. So, oh, well, I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's, again, actually, she'd done something like that before around Christmas, too. So, okay. Yeah, so she's, she's very like, skilled. She's sneaky. Very skilled. She knows what she's doing, yeah. <laughs> so I said, yeah, you know, why not? And of course, Pashi was cuddling with us all night and it was just so cute and she hasn't left since. We did try very hard to see if there was any other owner or any home that she needed to return to, but we didn't find anyone and we we're just so grateful to have such a hilarious and lovely animal. Very soft, yeah. very funny, a bit fickle and always developing new habits and interests and activities more than any other cats I've had. How old is Poshy? I think she's between two and three. Okay, so, still, so she's still, still young. kind of yeah. a little bit of a kitten. Okay. Right. She's... So you got her when she was like a baby then? Yes, yeah, she was very small. Oh, <laughs> I mean, how can you turn on Christmas Eve? Right, right. How can you turn away? Right. And, yeah. and I will say, as it turns out, she seems to have a great memory because she reverts to certain behavior around Christmas every holiday season. We get out a tree and we put down the tree skirt and she just plays with it in a very specific way and uh-huh. she loves the tree skirt so much that you know at the end of the season whenever we take it out we vacuum the tree skirt and it looks like we're shaving because there's so much cat hair on it. Oh uh, sure she yeah, just, yeah, yeah. But I she just that. she really loves a Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah Oh, that's so sweet. Well please give Poshy some little pets for me. Absolutely. And maybe a little treat yeah. Okay. Uh, yes <laughs> I, I think we can definitely arrange that. Okay cool. Are you ready for some Spitfire questions? I think so. Let's let's go for it. Okay. Mahler or Bruckner? Mahler. Debussy or Ravel? I can't. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, it would have been Ravel before, and now it's Debussy. Okay. Cats or dogs? Cats. Appetizer or dessert? Appetizer. Sparkling or still water? Still. Fan favorite question, alternate universe musical instrument? Probably bass. Oh, okay. Upright. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I was a jazz guitarist in high school, and that's uh-huh. so I can't say that as an alternate universe instrument, because I you've do done actually it. play that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool, though. I didn't know that. Indeed. Do you still perform, like, around? No, I put down the guitar when I got really serious about the bassoon. But gotcha. I did okay. play the guitar a little bit recently, and man, I've played the bassoon for thousands and thousands of hours in such a way that it's like, well, I haven't played for a while, but this still feels okay. Yeah. And the guitar, it's like, well, I still remember some things, but man, this feels awkward. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I feel like it should be the other way around. The bassoon is <laughs> kind of an awkward instrument. Yeah, so. <laughs> but I mean, again, you put more I, hours um, into many, that. Many more, yes. Yeah. But okay, but why, why the bass? I mean, I'm thinking both upright bass and electric bass, but one of the things I just love about the bass is the versatility and styles. 
so many kinds of music really rely on the foundation of a bass. Also, I think I tend to gravitate more towards being involved like harmonically. I mean, if I wasn't a bassoonist where I was, you know, doing a little bit of everything, one of my favorite things about the bassoon, then focusing sort of more harmonically and kind of at the core of it, I think is really, yeah. Yeah, I feel like cello and bass and bassoon are all very similar in personality types and like, I like structure, harmonic structure, that kind of thing too. Right, right. I really resonate with that. Yeah. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Pandemic guilty pleasure? Video games. Nice. Do you have like a, what console do you have? I have a Nintendo Switch. Yay. Okay. Oh my gosh, we should be friends. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, I thought about talking about that as an outside interest and it shouldn't be a guilty pleasure because it's really nothing to be ashamed of. But I don't have that many friends who are playing video games. But you know, now I'm more comfortable talking about it because now of course I know that you do also. Yeah. What games have you been recently playing? I mean, I'm more of like a role playing game kind of person. And of course also Zelda is, you know, classic for me. What about about you? Breath of the Wild is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Breath of the Wild. I recently, I'm really gotten into Witcher 3. Uh, oh, yeah, I haven't delved in yet, but... Oh, I, dude, you got to do it. Okay. Yeah, it's fun. It's a good game. If you like Zelda, you'll definitely like Witcher 3. Fantastic. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Favorite professor shout out? Burkholder. Okay. Peter J. Burkholder. So there is a book that most people who have studied music history, even like at kind of the 101 level, have seen, and that is A uh, History of Western Music mm-hmm. by Grout, Burkholder, and Poliska. And when mm-hmm. I was at Indiana University, Burkholder was there, the living editor of that book. And mm-hmm. I took a graduate course about Charles Ives with him. And uh-huh. he was hands down the best academic professor I have ever had. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. The reason that I say that is because somehow he was incredibly brilliant and yet he was never condescending. And he never mm-hmm. spoke in a way that was talking down to anyone. He somehow kept the playing field feeling equal. Even if people were making comments that were uninformed or they clearly had not done any you know reading or anything like that. But he was able to carry and kind of structure discussion and then there was the structure of his class where I felt like it was impossible not to learn because all of the assignments were paced in such a way that by the time they were somehow iterative or you know they were building on each other and then by the time you got to a final project you had already done half of it by doing his assignments I just have never had a class like that that was both so engaging because of the demeanor of the professor and the atmosphere of the classroom and then just the structure of the course yeah I think that's always the magic behind some of those kinds of teachers is A, just having that immense knowledge of the topic and also maybe even being so, you know, organized in creating a lesson plan for the entire semester. But then it's that third thing of, as you're saying, making it an even playing field and professing the knowledge in a way that that is not belittling. Totally respect, Uh, especially from music history that can be a quite dense topic sometimes. Right. And you say favorite professor, and I don't know why I gravitated towards history because of course, maybe mm. people often mention their their music professors, and I've had a lot of great music professors also. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, Professor Burkholder mm-hmm. immediately comes to mind. Yeah. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? I'm going to say Brian Pollard, the former principal of the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra. He was an incredible musician and an incredible personality and incredibly generous with students and aspiring professionals from all over the world. Mm-hmm. He gave them all, many people, lessons and he never charged them. Oh my gosh. Uh, and often those That's the way lessons were hours or, or days long. Did you work with him? I did a little bit. And we'll talk about that more over, oh, okay. over another course of the interview. Awesome. Okay, great. Most transformative performance experience? Experience? 
I'm going to have to say some performances of Bach Cantata 149 in Germany, which is Man singet mit Freuden vom Sieg, I'm butchering the German. And I say that because there's a there's a movement in that that is basically a trio for, or a trio quartet, bassoon, continuo, and then the alto and tenor soloists. And it is extremely joyful and happy. And I was playing with uh, Helmut Rilling, one of the most wonderful Bach interpreters of the last 50 years, in churches in Germany, including, I believe, the church where Bach was baptized. So mm-hmm. I was playing this fantastic music cool. by Bach in Bach space. And we also played it at the Thomas Kirche, which also a place that Bach worked. So it was just such joyful music with people who really loved it in the spaces that it was born out of. And that was right. just really quite special. Yeah, I'm getting chills thinking about that. Yeah. Desert Island piece of any genre? Steve Reich, Music for 18 Musicians. Oh, such a good piece. Nice choice. Also, you get like 17 extra friends on your island. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, think, I, think you, I think you solved it. Yeah, I think that's the one that you want on your desert island because it's a... How long is that piece again? It's like quite long, About right? 70. It's between 70 and 80 minutes depending on the, uh, yeah. the speed that they take. Yeah, so you're like jamming in cool minimalism with yeah 18, well, 17 right, other right. people. Have you played it? Oh, no. But <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even heard it live yet, but I just really can't. Oh, okay, I can't yeah. wait to someday. Honestly, I checked Steve right website sometimes to just see like well where's it playing next and like could i get time off work to go then can i afford the tickets then like when is it going to be but at some point yeah all right well you finished the spitfire questions congratulations well thank you (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) sounds like a triangle it sure does okay Okay, Adam, can you walk me through your musical origin story? How did you discover music, the bassoon? When did you decide to pursue that professionally? And walk me through the steps to where you are today. So I come from a musical family in the sense that my mom is a choral conductor. She's the professor of choral music at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, Mm -hmm. and also the chorus master for the Minnesota Chorale, which is the chorus of the Minnesota Orchestra. And her father started a music festival in, in Oregon as well. So I say this because I've been around music since I was not only a small child, but actually in the womb. My mom was conducting, I believe, performances of Foray Requiem the week before I was born. And then oh, what a beautiful she piece. had to have a, a student step in and conduct the last performance because I required You're some coming. attention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and apparently I was a very quiet baby, except for when she went to some recording sessions of Stravinsky's Paul Chanella at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, a piece which I still love, a recording which I still love. And apparently I was really active and, and very into it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't be, really? (laughs) So when I was a little kid, my favorite toy was my tape player, and I would lie in the crib, the literal crib, and would (laughs) listen on the tape player to, you know, songs, and then I would listen to the same ones over and over and over and try to memorize them. And then when they would run out, then I would yell, tape over, and my mom would come and rewind it, and then I would keep listening. (laughs) So so then I started taking piano lessons as a kid, because my mom is in choral music, of course, I was very rebellious, so I was not interested in singing choir. But I did occasionally sing in musicals or other activities like that. And this is important because when I got to junior high, I had to take a music class. And I was certainly not going to sing in choir for the reason that I just mentioned. So of course, you know, I took what we could all agree is the only alternative. I started playing the bassoon. Um, <laughs> the only alternative. Yeah, I believe so, you know. Uh, and, and actually, my thinking was, well, you know, I'm not going to sing in choir, but the uh, there's no bassoon players in the band. So maybe I could learn that over the summer no one else plays it so they won't know they won't notice it like I don't really know what uh, I'm doing 
So I started playing the bassoon and that was going okay. And I also uh, started playing guitar in high school for rock bands and jazz bands. But then I thought I was going to go to school for jazz guitar. Oh. But then I was getting ready to audition for the local youth orchestra or one of the local youth orchestras, Minnesota Youth Symphonies. And I heard that they were playing Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. And I thought, wow, that's a really special piece. And what an incredible bassoon part. So I... Exactly. And this was back in the day when you could listen to the first 15 or 30 seconds of every track on Amazon.com when Mm -hmm. when there were still CDs, but they'd have like audio samples. Right. And of course, you know, the first 15 to 30 seconds of every, you know, track one of The Rite of Spring is a bassoon solo. (laughs) Yeah. Famous one. The famous one. Yes. So I listened to actually about 50 recordings and I was just so taken with the idea, with the different kinds of timbres and sounds and interpretations that all of these people, they played the same instrument. They were playing the same music, right? It was no the same on every page but there was something so different and so varied and so personal and interesting about each interpretation and also each sound that was a big part of it and mm-hmm. that was something that really stuck out to me in such a way that I thought well I really I really want to pursue this so I practiced really hard and ended up playing the solo on on the right of spring oh awesome. and actually that was a an extremely memorable concert because I remember you know I we played it and everyone was just so 150 percent in because mm-hmm. you know, the right of spring for a bunch of children between 14 and 18 years old like there's a lot of counting I wouldn't say it's an easy piece so everyone was so totally focused and it was an incredible experience and I remember the conductor uh, Manny Loriano who's the principal trumpet of the Mm -hmm. Minnesota Orchestra he gave me a bow afterwards and I had this kind of feeling in my stomach it didn't feel sick but it was very distinct and it was kind of tingly and I felt like it was going upwards maybe a 75 degree angle or something and Uh I thought I really want to work in music for the rest of my life. Yeah. (laughs) Or something along those lines. Like that was such a rewarding experience, even if it was a bit gut-wrenching in some way. Right. It was a positive feeling in the gut, I should clarify. It was so rewarding because everyone was so connected and invested Mm -hmm. in in collaborating, you know, in that special group consciousness way that an orchestra is... Can only really do. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, totally. um, Or a, a great team of some kind. And that was a strong motivator for moving on to study music. So then I went to a bunch of music schools. I was in school for quite some time. I did five years in Ontario, Canada, three in Waterloo and two in Toronto Mm -hmm. with a wonderful bassoon teacher named Nadine Mackie Jackson and also great mentors in the Toronto Symphony, Michael Sweeney and Sam Banks. And then I did two years in Indiana with wonderful Bill Little and Kathleen McLean. Again, I've had just incredible teachers all along the way. And then I got a grant to study the legacy of the former principal bassoon of the Concertgebouw, Brian Pollard in the Netherlands. So I lived there for a year and worked with Yosalanga, who was in the orchestra at the time. And that was also an incredible experience. And then I moved to upstate New York to Bard College, where I was first studying with Mark Goldberg. Again, wonderful person and musician and teacher. And then was in the orchestra now training program for about two and a half years. And over that period, I asked a lot of questions about how I wanted to be involved with music, what the right role for me in the music world was, because I wasn't sure if trying to get a full-time position playing bassoon was the right fit for me and some of my okay. other life goals. But of course, I, I love being really close to the music. There's something about being close to the music and experiencing it in such a, I don't know how to say it, in a very close proximity that feels very important and kind of stimulating and invigorating yeah. for me. So I actually started then experimenting with administration and I was organizing some chamber music concerts there. But then I also started as the managing director of a new Bach festival in North Carolina called the Charlotte Bach Festival, where I was kind of had my hand 
men in every bucket, totally new organization, very small staff, and became very interested in administration and community engagement and education and, you know, how that intersected with performance and what that could mean. So then I eventually interviewed successfully for a position in the education and community engagement department at the Minnesota Orchestra, which is what I started doing in October of 2019. And of course, as we can all predict, relate to things definitely changed course a few months later with a a massive curveball. So when the pandemic had that effect of shutting everything down, I remember within one day, my to-do list was gone because everything had been canceled. And maybe five or six months after that, I found out that the the orchestra would be starting kind of a live streaming series, uh, simulcasting streams and broadcasts on Twin Cities Public Television, our local PBS. And Mm -hmm. they tapped me for a position I'd never heard of called Score Reader because I had the bandwidth. Again, so much of my to-do list had been canceled and we weren't doing in-person concerts. So I started doing that. And then over the course of a few months, that became more and more involved and my role grew more and more as things became more complicated. If you've got six cameras and you have three people on stage, there are many, many ways to approach it. If you've got six cameras and you've got 50 people on stage, you need to be a little bit more strategic and choosy about what you're doing. And Mm -hmm. that was, I became very involved with that to the point that kind of became more or less my full-time job. I was still doing some education stuff. And then I got hired to do that full-time at the end of the summer or beginning of the fall. And that's what I'm doing now. Okay. So I need to step back a couple steps. Please do. What do you mean by a score reader? So one of the things that I've noticed about kind of the world of orchestra concert video production is that the vocabulary to describe people's roles can vary some team to team and organization to organization. So Mm -hmm. when I tell you what score reader means, that may not be what it means somewhere else. In fact, I can tell you with certainty that it does not mean necessarily mean that somewhere else because I know other people that have the same title in a different job. But in the context of what I was doing, initially it was I would study the score and get a sense of what was going on and then deliver that information to the director and the camera operators. And they would use that information to make choices about what to do and what to show to sort of craft the visual narrative of a given piece of music. Okay, so I mean, we've all seen those classical music performances where someone, maybe let's say a string quartet, since I'm a string quartet musician, Mm -hmm. a string quartet, they'll focus on the first violin, but the first violin isn't playing. And it's actually the viola or the cello that has the melody for a significant, but the video is like stuck on this motionless person. So essentially your job is to say, well, let's move that camera to actually who is playing, right? So it's not just dead air of like staring at a section of firsts that isn't doing anything. Right. Okay. That's more or less what the goal is. And actually one of the reasons that I kind of became more and more involved with this was because like I said before, you know, if you've got a a lot of cameras and not that many people on stage that you're trying to catch, it's easier to get around that because you have more options. And that's what we were doing. So I would say things like, well, you know, the French horns are coming up or, I mean, I wouldn't quite say it like this because of course, you know, heat of the moment, we've got our kind of own language. But then, and I could say that this was a very transformative performance for me as well. In fact, professionally at this point, the most transformative performance was in November of 2020 when we were going to do Beethoven's first symphony. Mm -hmm. And we were looking through this stuff and it was just not working because again, if you've got a lot of people on stage, it's not possible for people to process the information so fast with so many different options and possibilities going on. And I should also clarify that the way that we do it here and that many orchestras are doing it now is they use robotic cameras, which are controlled remotely. And that means that you don't need one person for each camera. Uh So that means that you have, say, one person who's operating 
operating between two and four cameras, you know, and another Mm -hmm. person who's operating between two and four cameras. So they're actually doing a lot of multitasking. And that's one of the reasons sometimes things get stuck is sometimes it can be because the director, for whatever reason, is not, you know, changed the shot when they should have. But Mm -hmm. other times it's because they may not even have the right shot queued up and people are racing to figure out how to get there. So I Mm -hmm. I say all this because this Beethoven performance, we realized that the strategy that we'd been using was not going to work because it was not efficiently able to communicate the information that needed to be communicated to, you know, as you said, get off the first violin when they didn't have the melody. So that night, I think we stayed at the hall until maybe 10 or 11 p.m. And then I went home and worked for two or three more hours. And we basically planned out every cue for the concert on a spreadsheet that was color-coded by camera and had the information about what button, without going into too much technical detail, basically what what button sequence the camera operator needed to press to get that shot up. So we did that. That sounds intense. It was an intense night. But it worked really well. And that effect meant that instead of me saying, all right, now move camera three to the bassoons, I could say Mm -hmm. ready three point, you know, ready 13.3, 13.3 go. And it would be there when we needed it. And I would say Mm -hmm. when it should be there. So Mm -hmm. over the course of many months, and now I guess almost a year and a half, we've been refining that system. And I've been refining that system with different technology and through working with Mm -hmm. different camera operators to figure out how are they thinking? How do you turn the score into a visual narrative that you also know can be achieved by the people that you're working with and that they'll get the information that they need in time to make that a reality. Right. Yeah, you're like the visual conductor to really break it down, I suppose. Yes, I think that's a good way to explain it. And there's always, I haven't found a way that you can see everything all the time. So there's always choices and compromises to be made. And then there's just sort of also the overall puzzle of what really works for television. What are some of the rules, you know, quote unquote rules of putting together sequences visually and mm-hmm. that kind of business. So it's like mm-hmm. this massive musical Sudoku puzzle taking place yeah. <laughs> in the score and in Google Sheets. And <laughs> Wow. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of growing pains in developing this, as you say, this lingo, this system. But honestly, it's incredibly impressive of the learning curve that you've had been forced in ways of, you know, demand to be able to do. And I find it incredibly impressive, as I said. You're almost creating your own new job that all of us are in agreement that this is sort of going to be the future of a lot of performing in addition to the in-person live concerts where yes, you can be your own camera as an audience member and look wherever you want to look, but that there's still going to be that offering of being able to be at home and watching these concerts in the comfort of your couch or whatever. I totally agree with you. And I think that one of the things that the orchestra has seen from surveys and comments and other methods of data collection is that, you know, you've got people who are here who may not feel comfortable about going to concerts right now who really still love the opportunity to connect with the wonderful musicians and terrific programming at the Minnesota Orchestra. And then you've also got people who are in Minnesota, but who aren't local, who love going to the orchestra, but they may not be able to drive, right. you know, four hours in at this time of year or whatever. Mm-hmm. To or s- weather. Or weather. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, all, there are all yeah. kinds of elements there. And then you've got people who really, you know, connect with the musicians and the programming who may be very, very far away. And we've definitely mm-hmm. had some of those also. And 
also like the Berlin Philharmonic has been doing this also for they have their own digital concert the gold series. Standard. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And so now it's like, well, every orchestra should have their own catalog of performances archived for people to enjoy at any you know right. given point. One of the things that's been really interesting and humbling for me over the course of this process is that at this point, because there was a system that we kind of built out and developed last year, and then the orchestra built this incredible state-of-the-art video production studio out of what had been a couple of closets Mm -hmm. backstage. And now, you know, there's new technology in there. We had to do a lot of tweaking to the system. And I mention this because I've gotten a better sense of how both staffing considerations and technical considerations will perhaps impact the ways that different people will interpret the same score. And that's been really interesting to sort of see the kinds of choices that people are making to really give the best possible product with what they have. And I've just learned so much from watching things that that other people have done. And sometimes I see things that I want to try. So I try them, try to Mm -hmm. just carefully experiment with those things. And then other times I see things and and think that maybe I would approach it differently. And that's also a huge learning experience. But yeah, the Berlin Phil is always just so inspiring Mm -hmm. to look at. But I also have looked at some of their really old material and it also is really wonderful. And I can tell that they've changed their strategies and upgraded their technologies, you know, over the course of the 10 or 15 years that they've been doing this. They've been doing it. Because I think that the learning curve really continues. But that's, that's, as you say, it's also in alignment with the technology that keeps improving too. Exactly. And also, I think, you know, just as a, like a player or a conductor has a different relationship with a score, the same score in different parts of their life. I think that's, you know, true from this perspective also. You notice different kinds of things. There are different kinds of, you know, maybe a conductor is emphasizing something differently in such a way that you really feel like you need need to bring it out, even if, if you had done that piece previously and didn't feel like you needed to. I haven't been doing this long enough to repeat any pieces, so I can't tell you for sure if that's true. But there are videos of the Berlin Philharmonic doing the same piece like a yeah. decade apart, and they're focusing on very different things. But also, I'm sure that is different based on what conductor is conducting the piece, right? I think it's very possible. Well, it will be interesting for sure to see where your style of organizing the visual medium of the Minnesota Orchestra goes for the upcoming years that you'll be continuing to do this wonderful work. If it's not voiced to you, I will voice for those who are listening or watching that it's very much appreciated, the work that you do. Well, I'm so fortunate to work with an incredible team, and we've been very lucky that the camera operators that we work with, who sort of rotate through the different shows and the different directors that we work with, and of course, my incredible producer, Ashley Rowe, who now works at the orchestra. It's really been an incredible group effort. Joel Mooney is the technical director, and his kind of vision for what this could be, because this was all his idea at the orchestra, I believe. Initially, he designed this incredible production studio and I think it's the collaboration that has really pushed this and another thing that's just been so really incredible about the last year and a half of doing this stuff is now that we're back to something resembling a more normal season I'm mostly focused on the projects that that we're doing broadcasts for just because I'm involved in more parts of that process now but during the 2020-2021 season all of the concerts were broadcasted and streamed so I learned all of the pieces and I attended every rehearsal for a year and so hearing the artistry of the musicians in the orchestra I mean I I heard all the rehearsals like it just sounded so great all the time Mm -hmm. and that's just such an inspiration both the great music and then the incredible artistry from the musicians and finding ways to showcase share and capture those two things together totally the other thing that's been so interesting about this for me is developing a relationship or an increased awareness for the different styles of composers in the context of what that means visually and there are things that I had never really thought about as a player because I was looking at the score in a very different way and a much more holistic
holistic way, which I believe I probably should have been looking at this course in like that way as a player. So anyway, the opportunity to get to know a composer's language in a different way is always yeah. just so really interesting. Yeah, it's like a fringe benefit or something like that. Yeah, or the job, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of broadcasting and live streaming of a lot of classical music concerts recently. And a question I have is, A, what's the difference between a broadcast and a live stream? And how does that affect your job? So I think the vocabulary here can be tricky, and I am sure I will probably get something wrong <laughs> as I am new to the field. But I think it's an important distinction when you're streaming online or you're broadcasting on television mm-hmm. or you're doing both at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think there are sort of different considerations there that are important. And one of the things that's interesting about what Minnesota Orchestra is doing is we're simultaneously putting our concerts out both on the radio, on Minnesota Public Radio, on mm-hmm. television, on Twin Cities Public Television, and online. And the reason that this is different is because on radio, you can't have time that is dead sound-wise, right? right? If you can't hear it, then nothing's happening. Right. But of course, that's not the case on television. If you see something, I'm talking more here about transitions and less about the musical content. Yeah. But one of the things that I've learned through our projects with Twin Cities Public Television is that there are very strict length requirements on a broadcast window. And you don't want to go under and you don't want to go over. So what I mean by that is, you know, you don't want the entire concert to end 10 minutes before the broadcast window mm-hmm. because a network doesn't like to fill that with something else. Right. And you can't go over because, you know, we don't want to see the credits for this over the end of, you know, Brahms First Symphony. Like, exactly. That would be heartbreaking for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of planning that goes on with all of this component parts to make sure that the overall time lines up with what's going to work well on live television because these broadcasts are originally live here and then there's a little bit of editing that happens but they're live on television when they're happening which I think is kind of extra there's a different kind of energy from everyone involved and I also think as a viewer there's a different feeling when you're watching something that you know is happening live so that's just something that's worth considering when people are thinking about what they want to do with their performances where do they want to put them I think if you're going to do something online it's perfectly acceptable to say this is intermission we'll be back in 20 minutes but a television audience may not be so receptive to, you know, 20 minutes of oh. being told to wait for the next thing to begin. Right. I'm just so impressed the whole time of like, how do you do what you do on a weekly basis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, we're all still figuring it out, I think, in a good way. Yeah. The, the, yeah, learning, yeah. the learning never stops. And that's one of the things that I really love about what I'm doing is mm-hmm. that just like the study of an instrument and the study of music from a performance perspective, I think that there's just this ongoing learning curve that's always challenging you and demanding that you ask yourself questions and ask Mm -hmm. your colleagues questions and experiment and try new ways of doing things. Yes, it's never a boring job. That's a fact. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, are you ready to take a break? Yes. All right, well, we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So I'm so curious of what restaurants that I haven't visited that you have in the Twin Cities and that I should visit. Like you're going to be my like Zagat guide or whatever of <laughs> restaurants in the city. I guess maybe let, let me ask some preamble questions. Have you always been kind of a foodie or a restauranteur person that wants to always just find like the best spots in the city that wherever you travel? I would say that I have always really enjoyed good food, but my fiance, Anna, her 
her family loves food and her dad has a very strong Italian family culture. And when we started spending a lot of time together, something I noticed was that we would talk about food while we were eating dinner. Like we would be talking <laughs> about other meals. Like we'd be at a restaurant talking about other restaurants and the food was really good. Yeah. I thought that was so funny. And I've just really grown to not only love the variety of restaurants that the Twin Cities have, but also over the course of the pandemic, getting takeout from different restaurants was one of the best ways to support them. And right. there are restaurants that I've known about for a long time or that Anna has been going to for decades and that our loyalty then was really important for them. And that felt yeah. like one way that we could be investing in the community around us in a difficult time. Because as I'm sure we all can remember, restaurants were hit very hard, just mm-hmm. like the performing arts. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that I applaud you for helping out during that really precious time for all these local businesses. And I'm sure I hope none of the places that you were patrons of closed down during that. What I'd actually like to say is I think over the course of the pandemic, we just became more conscious of where we were choosing to spend money. Yeah, okay. And I think that actually made me, even though I wasn't eating at restaurants, when we were occasionally getting takeout from restaurants, it was more deliberate and I became more attached to those restaurants. And I feel like I've kind of brought that attitude and appreciation into this period when we can kind of go back. I see. If that makes sense. Absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah. So I know that we are focusing on the Twin Cities and what the Twin Cities has to offer. And I hope that this will be a great reason for anyone who wants to visit the Twin Cities to feel comfortable and invited to explore these great places to try different cuisines and different foods because the Twin Cities offers a lot of diversity, despite what maybe some people might think on the surface level. So what are your favorite restaurants in the Twin Cities? As I mentioned, Italian food and culture has become much more important in my life. So there are a few Italian staples for us. And one one of those is in St. Paul, Lucci Ancora, which is on Randolph and Cleveland. Okay. That's a great spot for a date night. And that there's something about the atmosphere. It's not a very large restaurant, but it always feels kind of active and homey. And I often see a lot of big families there. And their food is really wonderful. And I kind of comfort food. But another Italian restaurant that has just been just outstanding and spectacular, it's Osteria Ainoni. I think it's actually in Lilydale. So it's just outside of the Twin Cities. But because it's so good, we have to include it. That has sort of more traditional Italian foods. And by traditional, I mean foods that I had never seen because it wasn't like spaghetti. And, sure. You know, it was like osabuco mm-hmm. or, you know, sort of a wide variety of pastas. And one of my favorite dishes has become over the last, I don't know, five or six years, cacio e pepe, this kind uh-huh. of very simple Italian. Yes. Yeah, you you know it. It's like the grown-up version of mac and cheese that was always <laughs> described to me. Sure. And, and I love that. Yeah. Oh, um, so tasty. Yeah. That's one of the things that's been sort of the most fun for me is just like with bassoon, I really loved hearing different people's interpretations of, or not just bassoon, with orchestras, I love hearing different orchestras interpretations of works. And I love different restaurants' interpretations of classic and simple dishes like yeah. cacio e pepe. And- so that sparks a question, which is if you're trying a new restaurant, do you purposely choose one dish that, you know, kind of is that benchmark defining of, okay, if they do this well, then they must do other things well. I certainly have that. Sometimes I do that when I go to new restaurants. I think I do that with restaurants that have things that I recognize on the menu. Oh, okay. So it's <laughs> more then, of a, just a recognition of familiarity. Well, what, what I mean is if that's an option, I do it. And uh-huh. then of course, there are also times where you go to a new restaurant that has something totally different and you don't recognize anything on the menu. And that's also amazing. Just trying to pick something that, you know, or a variety of things that just sound good. And I think that kind of exploration and there's something very novel and fun about that 
Yeah. So in addition to just the food being delicious, how much of the restaurant going experience is about the ambiance and how much of it is really about the quality of the food? I think both. And it's been interesting because there are special people in my life who have different ideas about what the good ambiance at a restaurant is. Mm -hmm. Some people like it very quiet because Mm -hmm. their goal of being there is to have a conversation and other people may prefer a louder and kind of, you know, more lively atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm not even sure that I can boil down a good atmosphere to to one definition. But I think a great example is there's this, technically it's a steakhouse, but they have a bunch of other really fun things on the menu, including an assortment of different kinds of butter, like jalapeno butter and all this kind of stuff with bread. It's just incredible. It's this restaurant called Baldemar. And I mention it because the atmosphere there is very interesting because Baldemar is a beautiful building and it's beautiful on the inside. They've got these big pictures of cows. It's kind of funny now that I think about it. But the restaurant is in the middle of the Rosedale Mall parking lot. Um, (laughs) It's like a really cool restaurant like in a mall parking lot. But the atmosphere inside is so great. And something about it also to me just feels so funny because the inside is so different from the outside. Outside. And, you know, there's no way to get there unless you park in the mall parking lot. You're like right across the street from a department store. And But so the atmosphere, I think, is a big part of it. Somehow the atmosphere in that place was so special to me that even though the fact that I was at the mall, like, you know, didn't really impact my experience being at the restaurant. Totally. Do you ever get to meet any of the chefs? or get to know the owners of any of these places that you enjoy dining at? There was one time or maybe two times in my life where I met the chef at a restaurant and wow, that guy seemed so cool or girl, depending on the situation. So what I'm really trying to say is I'm not that cool, but the few times (laughs) that when I have done that, I felt like it was very special. Like in the presence of the superpower. Although there's a fantastic restaurant called Himalaya on Lake Street and it's Nepalese food. And the owner there is, he's extremely well welcoming and kind of always talking to the patrons. And my family's been going there for so long, especially my sister, that he's offered her a job a number of times. And oh, one of the really? litmus tests for her is, you know, she'll bring whoever she's dating to the restaurant and uh, uh, and, and he'll be paying attention. And then, okay. but so, so in the few instances where we've been lucky enough to have a relationship or even just a couple of conversations with, you know, the artist and visionary behind the, the establishment, that's been exactly. really special. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, I think that even makes it such a more community. I mean, when I think of a concert, right? Like if you're the audience consuming the food, yeah, it just brings everything even more dimensional when you get to know the owners and the chefs or of the establishment, as you say. Any other shout out restaurants? For some reason, I'm really thinking Italian today. Okay. So no, I that's think, great because I don't I th- know any Italian places. So this is perfect. Okay. Uh, no, there's there's two. Really incredible pizza, punch pizza uh-huh. is kind of that Neapolitan style pizza. And now they've got a few locations, but the one nearer to where I live was the original and it Unfortunately, it's closed now. This is a bummer. So I'm just going to start talking about the other restaurant. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, another kind of food that I really just have kind of is a guilty pleasure for me are different kinds of burgers. Okay. And there's one restaurant that has Southern style food that also just has an incredible burger. They've got great fried chicken. They've got really incredible sides and also has a fun atmosphere. And and that's Revival. And there's one in St. Paul and one in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend Revival. It's just Mm -hmm. delicious if you're into that kind of food. Sure. Like Southern Comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So other outside of Italian, I guess, because that's where we were focusing. Is there a particular item of food or a dish that you kind of crave or go in search of in the cities? I would love to say that was sushi, but sushi can be so expensive that I uh, really limit myself. But I do love sushi when I can get it. And do you have any recommendations? I, Yumi Sushi in St. Paul. Okay. Uh-huh. Near Selby and Dale. 
meal. Mm-hmm. It's really fantastic. And then also, when I can't do sushi, I love poke, which is mm-hmm. generally much more affordable. Yeah. And there's a place in St. Paul called Poke House. You know, I wonder what they sell. And yeah. it's also very excellent. For some reason, I find that usually I don't find cold food comforting, but I find poke and sushi very yeah. comforting. And, and making your own sushi at home is mm-hmm. so much fun and humbling. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I think it has to do with the rice. The rice, it's like a blanket of yeah, yumminess. That, I don't Agreed. Know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do a couple other shout out restaurants in the cities. Please um, do. I don't eat red meat, but I've been told that the burgers at Parlor are very, very good. It's uh, on I, my list to check out. I've yeah, also heard that. There's it's one. On every, every list, yeah. Mm-hmm, there's one in downtown St. Paul and there's one in the North Loop in Minneapolis. They boast about their old fashioned as well, which I've had, and it is very good, but it's about a $15 old fashioned. So you just had to like know what you're getting yourself into. So that's one. I'd also say these are sister restaurants. One's called Hi Hi, which is Vietnamese inspired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> Have you been there? Absolutely. Hi yeah. Hi is delicious and, yeah. and really fun atmosphere. Oh, yeah, totally. I love how you can choose the inside or outside. It's a little bit tiki inspired. Question. Totally. Mark? Yeah. Not as tiki inspired as down the street from them, which is Psycho Susie's. But they're more known for their tiki drinks and not the food, right? So I'm going to shy away from them. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But Hi Hi has excellent food. I've never been disappointed. Very flavorful. Everything just feels very light and really yummy and delicious. And their sister restaurant is Ola Arepa, which is mm. also a little bit south of downtown Minneapolis. And they sell arepas mm. and also a bunch of other South American foods. You can get like fried plantains. It's going to be a little bit more on that heavier side, but just very, very tasty. Again, I've never been disappointed when I've ordered from them as well. Well, I'm thinking, do you have any other recommendations? Well, you mentioned Vietnamese food, and I also love Vietnamese food. Yeah. So in, in Minneapolis, Quang's or Quang's, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. What, I'm not which, sure either. Yeah, Right, but that they're always just Street. delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just fantastic. Also then in St. Paul, Nagan or Nan is just a delicious. They're kind of a little more fusion-y. They've got some other things on the menu that's kind of a mix, but their soups, I just think, are fantastic. Mm-hmm. It, it's really, I'm limiting myself to one favorite per city mm-hmm. so that they don't have to really compete with each other but sure, right. they're both just wonderful have you been to young yonis so we did take out from there one time but it's so far from our house oh one of the many wonderful things about society opening up more now is that there are places that we've either wanted to try or places that we tried to have with takeout and i'm really looking forward to just being in person at so many places and also part of it as kind of a community aspect is seeing other people there with their loved ones and with their families and with their partners and just mm-hmm. people being out and appreciating things feeling normal in, in a again. shared space is yeah. something that I, yeah i never really i noticed it before but i didn't crave it as much as i do now yeah because i didn't know it was an option for that not to be around <laughs> yeah and none of us did i think my final recommendation that i can give at the current moment is the final recommendation <laughs> i really enjoyed and it's unusual because i don't really see a russian cuisine themed restaurant in any other city i've never really or I've never you know sought it out but Moscow on the Hill in St. Paul has some really delicious gnocchi and some really other delicious charcuteries and just very 
of what I somewhat understand, it's on that authentic train of what it really is like to eat Russian food. I would just recommend it. I know that right now it's very sensitive considering the Ukrainian situation, but if you do read on their website, they actually explain that they were refugees from Russia back generations ago. So that establishment is in support of the Ukrainian cause. So I don't feel guilty going there and enjoying their food. Let's put it that way. Have you been there before? I was actually there for the first time recently, but it was only for drinks. But their menu looked fantastic and I can't wait to go back. Yeah, you should definitely. Or yeah, we should coordinate. That would be wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for enlightening me and sharing some of your favorite restaurants. I can't wait to try some of that Italian food. That sounds so delicious. Can I ask you two final questions? Please do. Okay. What is one piece of advice you would want to tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career? I would tell a younger version of myself to be open and excited to the different twists and turns in the journey. And I've been extremely fortunate to have interesting opportunities that allowed me to go in different directions. And at the same time, I think I sometimes wondered if those were the right directions because that isn't what I thought a music career looked like. And when I was in school, for the most part, I didn't realize how limited my ideas about what my career could or should look like were. But I think that the next generation is going to be much more awakened to how much variety there can be because we've all been forced to confront that. Right. The road to a music career of whatever destination is never straight. Okay. And as we enter a post-pandemic world, what elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue and what would you want to shed? Well... I mean, your job is yeah, that's, like, that's a really that's a funny question job, right? because yeah, I, yeah I, I I mean, I came out the other end with a different job that frankly I I didn't even know existed. Right, you know, working wasn't with stuff created. That I, yeah, I had never thought about. I guess I would just like to keep thinking about how to share the experience of live music in a variety of ways with people that are not able to be there live for a variety of reasons. And in terms of what musical habits I would shed, I mean, maybe this isn't a hard to say if this is a pandemic thing, but I would like to play the bassoon more as mm-hmm. as things sort of become more settled with a, a new job and a steep learning curve. So the habit that I would like to shed is the one of, you know, not really practicing or playing music with other people people as much as I would like. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, we just got to create new... Well, let's see. How can we incorporate restauranteering and performing together? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We'll just play... We'll play for food. Is that... Can we barter in that? I I think that's a good... That that may be the future right there. Let's find out. Uh, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) All right. Are there any platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? The Minnesota Orchestra website, www.minnesotaorchestra.org. And then there's a link somewhere that will take you to the streaming site where all of the visual media is living and shared. Cool. Okay. And if you enjoyed listening, be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning into this podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. It doesn't need to be long. Your review will help others search for the podcast because of the crazy algorithms and you'll make sushi's day and it's free make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well if you want to level up you can always become part of the hidden behind the music stand family by donating what you will on our patreon page at patreon.com slash hidden music stand our social media handle for facebook instagram and twitter is at hidden music stand and we'd love to hear from you at our email hidden music stand at gmail.com didn't recognize a piece we discussed during the episode no worries there's a spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience the link is 
in the description of each episode. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Adam. It's so good to see you again and to catch up and learn a little bit more about you and also some amazing restaurant recommendations. Thanks so much for having me, Patty. This has really been a pleasure. Yay. And thanks for listening. Say bye, sushi. Bye.